0: That is Green Left Weekly.
1: It's the people's voice committed to human and civil rights, ecological sustainability, democracy and equality. It presents ideas that the
2: mainstream media won't. Green Left is a leading source of local, national and international news with analysis, discussion and debate to strengthen the anti-capitalist movement
1: helps expose the lies of the capitalist press and puts the voices of the marginalised and the oppressed at the centre of fighting for a better world and helps us understand the political developments unfolding around
0: us. Good morning, listeners. You are listening to Green Left Radio. And for our program today, um, your presenters today are going to be myself, Jacob.
3: And me, Ari.
0: Alright, so before we get into the program, I'd like to acknowledge that FreeCR and Green Left Radio is being broadcast to you from the Wondry land of the Kulin Nation. we like to acknowledge that this always was, always will be Aboriginal land, and that sovereignty has never been ceded. Okay, so I guess the mo- um, one of the main kind of things to kind of talk about is... Um, in terms of like what has kind of happened this um, past week. As kind of per usual, the main kind of thing that is really dominating politics um, in this sort of past moment has is, has been um, COVID-19. And um, initially, I'll get you, yeah, I'll, before me, um, I wanted to kind of discuss the New South Wales kind of situation, but there's actually another funny story I just sort of heard about that I thought was kind of worth kind of commenting on. And that is, um, everyone is probably aware that Father's Day happened, um, last weekend. I wasn't. Um, and, um, well, I mean, yeah, uh, probably for those who don't, um, who are estranged from their parents, um, which includes actually me as well. Um, but I mean, that, that, that's besides the point. Um, Father's Day was last weekend. And for most people, um, who are in New South Wales, in Victoria, unless you lived with your father, um, mm. You were probably not likely um, to be able to celebrate um, Father's Day with your father unless you're doing it via Zoom. However, that did not stop our Prime Minister, Scott <laughs> Morrison, who is mm. currently um, travelling, um, who currently, in terms of his kind of situ- working situation, if, if that's what he does, <laughs> um, in terms of that, he, um, he, um, Scott Morrison had actually had travelled um, all, all the way from um, Canberra to Sydney for a number of days um, dr- um, for, mm. um, for Father's Day um, to see his family. And, of course, that, of course, got a pretty interesting kind of reaction, obviously, in the media. <laughs> and, obviously, there's this whole thing, I mean... Scott Morrison did defend it by saying, you know, it is within the rules, and, and in mm. theory, um, with all the kind of rules of essential work, etc., um, it is actually <laughs> possible for those who are considered essential workers um, to travel from um, from their their place of residence, which in this case, Scott Morrison's place of residence in Sydney, and, also, and but of course his workplace is obviously in Canberra, the Parliament House. Now, the po- but the problem with this is. If you put most of the... Cunt, um, at least two states <laughs> into lockdown where most people are not able to see um, their immediate family if they don't live with... I don't actually just think it's a very good look for Scott Morrison uh, to just actually go and take a trip. Like if you if you if you're a political leader <laughs> who are trying to say that you know uh, you're basically making the argument that you know you have to be under all these restrictions for the sake of the country, it's, it's probably best if you take a kind of step back. I mean, I'm sure, and not actually. <laughs> do anything that would look like bad optics. And this is the definition of bad optics. And I think Mm. the other sort of funny point is, reading the ABC article about this, um, Scott Morrison was kind of quoted as saying he did not intend to mislead the public by posting an old photo on Instagram, (laughs) Which is what apparently he did. I didn't <laughs> check his Instagram, but apparently he had posted mm. an old photo on Instagram uh, for Father's Day, which is what a lot of people have been doing actually, um, yeah. just to not, um, just to, yeah. So it's it, it, and yeah, so it's sort of like he, it's quite rich. I think he's been caught out by journalists for mm. clearly taking a strip that is bad optics regardless of whether it was allowed under regulations. I don't actually think that is the um, the point um, um, that's here. It kind of just reflects Mm. that, you know, for a lot of the the rich and powerful and and the politicians, they essentially almost think that the rules that they want to impose on all us don't um, apply to them.
3: Yeah, for sure. We'll get into it more later when we talk about New South Wales unlocking or their, their roadmap and stuff. But it is very much a case of, you know, our quote-unquote leaders, because, you know, whether or not Scott Morrison leads up in the air, probably a no, though. Mm. Them thinking that, yeah, they have a different set of rules, because they do. Like, that's how it works, practically, of course, right? They have a different set of rules. (coughs) And it's, I mean... Scott Morrison, I feel like Scott Morrison's nickname should really be Bad Optics though. So like it's not nobody's surprised when it's like, oh yeah, Scott Morrison did something stupid and uh kind of something that didn't fly well. Mm.
0: But yeah. Um I think I thought that was a pretty amusing mm. kind of story that happened um last weekend. Um, oh, yeah. but now going into I guess um the current kind of political situation um around COVID nineteen. Now Obviously, kind of last week, we kind of um, spoke about, we kind of t- gave a bit of a, a, had a bit of a discussion about the Victorian kind of situation. Now, it is quite clear that, um, you know, Victoria and, um, both Victoria and New South Wales are in some form of indefinite lockdown until they reach the kind of 80% vaccination double dose. Mm. Um, now, but on the other hand, New South Wales made a number of interesting <laughs> announcements in terms of their, uh, in terms of reopening. And essentially, what they're going to be implementing is they've announced a bit of a roadmap out of lockdown, which is I think scheduled to happen in October. Now, essentially, um, based on the seventy, um, based on reaching the seventy percent double vaccination milestone, they're going to be easing a number of kind of restrictions for those who are fully vaccinated. Um, for example, one example is um, at least five people who are fully vaccinated will be able to gather at their homes. Um, the people um, who are fully vaccinated might be able to go. To, I think be able to go to cinemas or mm. um, um, pubs, um, etc. And of course, obviously, all that is going to kind of be policed. But I mean, yeah, well. I guess. Um, and at the same time. Um, as part of, I guess, this kind of roadmap, um, the government hasn't necessarily made any sort of, um, commitments to, um, expanding the healthcare system. They haven't really made any commitments to implementing sort of COVID-19 safety practices in the workplace. And in fact, um, one interesting sort of news story I just read, um, this morning actually is that a number of bus drivers, are taking kind of strike action um, in New South Wales um, mm. in terms of um, basically demanding rapid Atchigan, um testing, which is um, basically something that is um, needed for um, for transport because basically it gives it's basically a way of rapid kind of testing yeah. um, for COVID nineteen. And yeah, so but at the same and but at the same time, another kind of interesting thing that was um, reported in the Australian yesterday was apparently. This opening up at 70% of, um, a 70%, um, double vaccination rate was actually not necessarily the recommendation that was made by the Chief Health Officer, um, in New South Wales. And essentially she was overruled, um, by the ministers on the question. In fact, her Hmm. preference in terms of the current sort of easing of restrictions was at 85% double vaccination, um, not 70%. And I think that just sort of reflects, I think, the mentality of uh, the liberal government, and it yeah. just reflects that they're prioritising business and interests um, over that over public health, and mm. it's um and of course there's also I, I think another thing to point out about these easing restrictions is one of the kind of things that we've sort of talked about in the past has been one of the Things that has characterised the New South Wales lockdown has been the disproportionate kind of policing of um, migrant communities in, yeah. especially in the western Sydney, um, which has been ha- has had a heavily imposed um, LG um, local government area kind of lockout where people within that loc- local government area are not ab- are able to leave, etc. Now, what's kind of interesting is um, a lot of those suburbs are potentially going to remain um, kind of locked down and but it's essentially what what it what that means is the people who are fully vaccinated in the kind of rich sort of suburbs like mm. uh in the eastern suburbs of Sydney for example or Bondi will be able to go probably go to the pub sooner than those who are in um in the and southwestern or western Sydney so i yeah, think it yeah. just reflects a di- a clear disproportionate sort of class response especially since um it, it's quite clear that the government has Clearly, been trying to kind of change their tactics, whereas they they mm. have been, in sense, as we sort of argued before, they've been directly responsible for this outbreak. Yeah, and. But they still are continuing to try and put the blame on individuals. So now um, it it started off with, oh, well, they blamed rule breakers for the cases kind of going out of control. Mm, And now that they're going with the... Now that it's clear that the federal government is implementing... uh, um, is trying to adapt a a kind of a a type of suppression strategy for COVID, i.e. not um, abandoning elimination, uh, uh, they're still... um, they're, They're now kind of changing the tune to, oh, well, if you're not vaccinated uh then well it's your po- your fault um if you get yeah, COVID.
3: Yeah, yeah. yeah. <coughs> Pardon me. And yeah, on the on the whole topic of like the kind of unbalanced enforcement and like I said, the whole issue of the elites having different rules from the rest of us, there's an article in The Guardian from yesterday as well that does basically make where um a speech I think from Gladys Berejiklian essentially does make it explicit that there are going to be certain areas that will be able to unlock in New South Wales uh, compared to others that won't. And like you said, working-class migrant neighbourhoods less likely to be able to unlock and that sort of stuff. But there's a great line in the Guardian article that I thought really speaks to what you were saying about the uh, lockdown rules and stuff, the lifting of the lockdowns following business interest rather than actual health interest. Is um, the, They had a quote from... Carrie Chant, I think her name is, who's the... Yeah,
0: she's the shelf, chief health officer, essentially. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah.
3: They were talk, you know, talking to her about lifting the lockdowns and stuff. And, uh, what was it? Chant declined to say if she was comfortable with the plan, or sorry, declined to say that she was comfortable with the plan, but agreed that it gave certainty to businesses, which is really what the whole point of this, you know, roadmap to unlocking it, like probably a too low proportion of fully vaccinated people. And while case numbers are still climbing, because like, if, you know, if New South Wales was 70% vaccinated or gets to 70% vaccinated or whatever, and they don't also have continuously climbing case numbers, that's a different issue. But because, you know, they want to serve these business interests, they probably won't really care if they hit 70% vaccinated when on schedule and the case numbers are still climbing or they're holding steady or whatever it's just yeah about serving business interests and about serving the the desires more than the actual like needs of the the kind of upper crust so to speak or the more wealthy and white of the community.
0: And yeah, I think another thing to kinda of add is one of the the issues with it on um, what's clear I think what's clear is that the New South Wales government is trying to push I guess this idea of having a premature kind of opening um in line with um yeah. with what the Morrison government has been pushing this whole time. Yeah, yeah. Is one of the one of the big kind of concerns is it has been Consistently, kind of reported um, that because one of the issues with COVID nineteen that's um, not going to go away even with um, with vaccination rates going up and up. Because I think you know one of the positive hmm. things I, I I to acknowledge is I did do a bit of a look at some of the different countries um, yeah. that have implemented the COVID nineteen vaccine, yeah. and there has you know while there is some um, there is some um, upsurges in countries like Israel and. Hmm parts of America and also the UK or um, yeah. across Europe, there is a sort of sh- a trend that um, vaccination has been correlated with a decrease in sort of cases, yeah, yeah. which has been, which is a positive thing. <laughs> so potentially, yeah. they, um but I guess the main, but the issue still hasn't gone away that Um COVID nineteen exponentially increases. Um people can still be um still get hospitalized, well the unvaccinated. But also there also if the cases are large enough, um, it can also seep into the vaccinated kind of population. Yeah. But one of the kind of big concerns is and this has been kind of reported, is it's um is apparently in October. ICU admissions and so on that new south wales public health system is apparently going to be driven to yeah basically driven under a lot of serious pressure yeah. And despite and despite these kind of reports, the government is still the New South Wales government is still going with uh, a um, with a, a premature easing restrictions. You know, you'd think yeah. in the situation that they've managed to get themselves into, you they would actually hold off. Um, and especially in, and yeah and yeah yeah. So I think there's yeah, there's clearly I think it's just a clear another example of how the New South Wales government and also the Liberal government is prioritizing business interests um ahead of public health. And I think, you know, I think as um as socialists and as um left wing people we, we should be, you know, opposing this kind of premature opening of um of mm. restrictions um until that the government is willing to implement um the, the necessary measures to keep yeah. us safe.
3: Yeah, exactly. I mean, say what you will for the annoyance that is the lockdown in Melbourne and Victoria. The fact that it's extended as needs rather than just based on some timeline is a good thing. Mm. Like, annoying as it is to keep hitting basically a couple days before it's supposed to start lifting and then there being like, now another two weeks, another month, whatever. It's still better than the alternative. Mm. (laughs) So. Which uh, I feel like uh, New South Wales might be finding out about relatively soon, but mm. we'll see.
0: But yeah, I think it's. We're, I think we're going to go into sort of some interesting times because essentially, I mean, I I I think that you know, as important as these kind of uh, as the kind of elimination strategy has been for um for Australia in particular, it mm. does seem to me that in terms of like um while ideally i think you know in an ideal world the government um the federal government would be you know shutting down the entire economy yeah. paying everyone to kind of stay at home yeah, yeah. um et cetera, to kind of drive down cases to as as low as kind of possible yeah um the the main issue is that it does feel that um there's a certain sort of inevitability with where the sort of government is kind of going with in terms of the pre, uh, in terms of their premature opening, and I think that's yeah. where I think the focus has to be on demanding um, an expansion of the healthcare system, demanding yeah, yeah. of um, protections of essential workers. Because if we're gonna if we're yeah. going to live with COVID as um, as most of the world has is kind of already grappling with at the moment, then mm. Australia needs to actually the federal government needs to step up. They need to yeah. they need implementing all these sort of measures that make it possible or less worse than yeah, what yeah. it could be. And because obviously the issue of the COVID nineteen overloading the healthcare system etc is not going yeah. to go away until the vaccination rates probably get high enough, and also there's um, various sort of suppression sort of implemented.
3: Yeah, it does feel a bit worryingly like the you know, the federal liberal government and maybe New South Wales as well has sort of, in hindsight, looked at what happened in the US last year and been like, the Conservatives still came out astoundingly popular out of that. So maybe we don't need to protect people. Mm.
0: Oh, well, I mean, there's that, there's, a, there's been a lot of... Comp- I think there's been a lot of complex sort of factors around that because I think yeah. in some sense uh, the government has been both a victim was in some sense in terms before this sort of outbreak was almost a bit of a victim of its own success um, yeah, but yeah. we sort of commented before that you know the government could have actually been doing a lot more in the yeah. lead up before we could have, um, to have and this outbreaks, these outbreaks we're currently experiencing in New South Wales could have um, actually been avoided yeah for sure Anyway, I might just go play, um, anyway, I think that's, I think that's pretty much it in terms of this, um, kind of discussion on the New South Wales pandemic, um, or at the COVID-19 pandemic as expected. There's still lots of different elements around this pandemic as it sort of goes on in Australia. Mm -hmm. And But, yeah, we'll definitely, be, uh, we'll definitely be keen to kind of keep discussing updates on this and giving us sort of a latest sort of analysis. And But, yeah, I might just play a quick announcement. In fact, I'll just play the announcement about, since we're talking about COVID, about getting your vaccination if you haven't got it. A message from
2: Victoria's community sector.
0: I'm looking forward to not worrying that my patients are going to die of COVID. To no one else being separated from their mum in aged care looking forward to our wedding and having our family and friends from overseas here with us.
4: I really want to see my mum.
0: I'm looking forward to being able to welcome guests without a mask on.
2: To having all the sports back to normal so that my family members can come and watch me play. I look forward to performing in front of a big crowd again. So please, get vaccinated. Please get vaccinated. Please get vaccinated. Let's get back to the good things. I ask you to get vaccinated. For all of us. Please
0: get vaccinated. A message from Victoria's community sector.
2: A 3CR
5: supporter.
0: All right, you're listening to Green Left Radio on 855 a.m., and for the next part of the program, I was going to be playing a recording of a Green Left podcast that has been recorded um, titled Farooq Tariq, the Pakistani state and the Taliban. And to just give a bit of a brief kind of description of it, um, Pakistanis Prime Minister Imran Khan has hailed the new Taliban rulers of Afghanistan as having broken the chains of slavery. Green Left's Peter Boyle spoke to veteran Pakistani socialist Farooq Tariq about the attitudes of the Pakistani state and the ruling elite to the, to the Taliban. so yeah this um this um, I hope um, listeners um, enjoy this um this interview and it's going on for 18 minutes and yeah I hope I'll we playing it now One,
6: one,
2: two, three. <laughs>
6: Welcome to the People Powered Left Podcast, where We give a voice to the 99% and not the big corporations. If you think this project is important, please consider becoming a supporter today. Now, on to our
7: latest episode.
1: My name is Peter Boyle, and in this podcast, I'm speaking to veteran Pakistani socialist Farouk Tariq about the peculiar relationship between the Pakistani state and ruling elite and the Taliban in Afghanistan. I understand that some sections, at least, of the Pakistani ruling elite welcome uh, the Taliban return to power. Is that true and why?
5: Yes, uh, informally, yes. They all welcomed and glorified the victory of uh, Taliban. But formally, they said, we will wait until the situation is clear in Afghanistan. But yesterday, when uh, the foreign minister of uh, Britain was on a visit to Pakistan, the foreign minister of Pakistan said, Kabul is a reality, we have to deal with it. And that's what they have been saying in the past, that Talbans are reality. they facilitated the Doha negotiation and they somehow helped uh, the Taliban movement to come into power.
1: Now, uh, your Prime Minister Imran Khan was uh, widely reported as uh, describing the Taliban's return as the breaking
5: of the chains. Taliban has not broken the chains. They have put the chains on, around the people of Afghanistan and they have been stranglehold in the old uh, conservative traditions which they want to bring back what they did from 96 to 2001.
1: Now the Pakistani um, intelligence agency I- ISI uh, has actually played a big role in the very formation of the Taliban. Now in these last 20 years during the so-called war on terror has the ISI continued to maintain those links that uh, with the Taliban uh, that that derive from its uh, origins.
5: Yes, uh, it was Pakistan People's Party, who was in power from 94 to 96. And the interior minister at that time was a military general, Nasirullah Babur, who has claimed publicly that he has built Taliban to come into power. And they gave all sort of support. Uh, they trained them, gave them money, gave them the arms. And that's how the Taliban, in the initial period, came into power. But they were saying that we need a strong government in Afghanistan. As you would know, after uh, the uh, murder of Najibullah, it was Mujahideen who was in power for three years, and it was like government changing all the time. And it was very unstable government. So Pakistani ruling class at that time, which was headed by Benzir Bhutto, uh, thought that if we could bring our own people to power in Afghanistan, Actually, Pakistani ruling class always treated Afghanistan as one of their colony. They never thought and uh, expressed Afghan as an independent nation, as a sovereign nation. So they helped Taliban at the time. And then for the last 20 years, they looked at Afghanistan that it is going more close to India. And Indians are the ones who are helping. The uh, Afghan government supported by the Americans to stabilize, to consolidate their power. So Indians went out of the way to put a lot of investment in, in Afghanistan, including building of the parliament uh, in, in Kabul, which is now been taken over by the Taliban. So Pakistani ruling class after taking over of, uh, of uh, Taliban, uh, uh, the whole Afghanistan, they were very happy because they thought it's a setback to Indian establishment and they have lost their billions of dollars which they have invested in Afghanistan. So Pakistani only, they can't look beyond their nose. They just want to see what India does and how we can compete with them. And they should really have a normal relationship with India. They should have a friendly relationship with India. Because we have more in common with Indian Punjab and Indian um, uh, culture than the Afghani culture, which is a different culture. But Pakistani always went to support Taliban just to defeat Indian. And that's what uh, their whole intention was. So India was um, going out of the way. To say publicly that ISI has helped. Now ISI has not helped directly, publicly, formally. It is all informal. And also the main, I think, allegation we can have. The main fact is that many Pakistani Taliban, Pakistani Taliban, went into Afghanistan without the knowledge of this state. They thought they are fighting jihad. So they must go to Afghanistan. So it's more of ideological association of Pakistani religious fundamentalists, which compelled and forced them to be part of the Afghan Taliban rather than uh, direct support by the ISI and military establishment. So an ideological relationship was established and Pakistani Taliban and Afghan Taliban always said, we are brothers and sisters. So that is the real base which unite them more in close rather than directly supported by the establishment.
1: Now, I understand there were some voices in Pakistan that have hailed uh, the Taliban return to, to power as a step on the road to the liberation of Kashmir. Can you tell us anything about that?
5: Now, there are Pakistani fundamentalists who are quite happy. And they said publicly, even ministers of uh, this Imran Khan government, Um, Imran Khan and his uh, foreign minister was a bit careful. They were saying, we have to engage, we have to go along. But they never said we are going to uh, accept Taliban as the uh, official uh, ruler of Afghanistan. But many in Pakistan are in the illusion that Taliban would liberate Kashmir as they have liberated Afghanistan. But they don't know Pakistan army. Pakistan Army would never like Talibanization of Pakistan in the sense that they should take over Pakistan and then also go to Kashmir. It is very difficult option for the Pakistani ruling class uh, that Taliban should be more strengthened because of Kashmir. They would give support in Kashmir to some of the locals, but not directly as has been the case for the last few months and so on. They have an agreement with India. You don't intervene here and we will not intervene there. And it's the fundamentalist groups themselves who will try their best that Taliban should be strengthened in the Indian-occupied Kashmir. But on the other side, the Pakistani-occupied Kashmir, there is also a national movement. So as you know, Kashmir is occupied by the two forces. It's not just India, it's also Pakistan. So I don't think that Pakistani ruling class would accept Taliban government in Pakistan, and they have taken military action against Taliban in Pakistan because the Pakistani Taliban's main enemy is the Pakistan army. As they say, they are brought up by the imperialists. So they have been attacking Pakistan army. They have been suicidal bombs against uh, different uh, uh, institutions of the Pakistani state. So I think, uh, and Pakistani army is not Afghan army. It is enriched with the British imperialist traditions and it is uh, not a new army. It know how to, how to, how to take, how to bloodshed uh, people and it has played a part in uh, Palestine on uh, behalf of uh, Israel at one time. It has played a part in Bangladesh and it will never hesitate to use maximum force if they ever thought that their own rule is in Egypt. So it's a different scenario in Pakistan than Afghanistan.
1: So more generally, uh, can you explain what is the interest of the Pakistani ruling class in supporting religious extremism, fundamentalism, not just in the case of the Taliban or Taliban Afghanistan, but Taliban Pakistan perhaps or other you know, if not those organizations, other religious fundamentalist organizations in in Pakistan. What is the interest of the ruling class in promoting this religious extremism?
5: Well there has been off and on sport for fundamentalists by Pakistani state. They are quite confused ideologically what to do. Sometimes they give them sport publicly, sometimes they use military options against them. And they liberate areas where Taliban had taken over. And it started during Ziaul Haq period in the 80s when he used Talba, uh, Mujahideen uh, to defeat uh, the Afghan revolution of uh, uh, Tarakai in 78. Uh, and onwards, mil- American imperialism has all, is now an open uh, fact that uh, the Americans gave all sort of support to these Mujahideen to use them in Afghanistan. You use a barbarian force against the other, they will come to your neck as well. This is the the lesson of the history. You can't uh, bring up barbarians and expect you are safe. Uh, You can only use them. Uh, Like Taliban in Afghanistan, now they want an independent government. uh, And they when someone asks them, a Pakistani journalist asks them, would you support Pakistani Taliban to come over in Pakistan or would you ask them to stop their military actions, their uh, terrorist action in Pakistan? But the Afghan Taliban, Zabiullah Mujahid said, it is Pakistan issue, it's not our issue. And we can't intervene over there. So you see the support of the Afghan Taliban to Pakistani Taliban and they will, they are lying that uh, Afghanistan would not be a base for international terrorism. It will be a base and Pakistani establishment is really confused. Now, I have seen different uh, periods coming up. But they always think like the American thing. Gun is the option. So uh, they always use military means to eliminate religious fundamentalism. On the other side, this government, present government, has become much more conservative than the previous government. Also, I think... Pakistani establishment want to use religious fundamentalism to divide the people on the religious lines, not on the class lines. Now, for instance, Nawaz Sharif was very open opposition to the military rule in civilian affairs. He was thrown out of power because he thought military generals are too much intervening. Now, military generals on one side in 2018 general election, prop up a new group of fundamentalists which got nearly 9% of vote. This was to divide the vote of the right wing because Muslim League Nawaz is also a right right wing party. So they used a fundamentalist group gave them all sort of support and then uh, they got some votes and they got few MPs as well. And then after the elections, when they went out of their control, they called general strikes in whole Pakistan because uh, Pakistan was too lenient with France uh, on the issue of uh, these uh, blasphemic uh, content and also against uh, Denmark. So they said you should kick out French ambassadors from Pakistan. So the military, the same military which prop up these fundamentalists, went against them, arrested all of them, put them in jail, and so on. So they use all sort of dirty taxes. And uh, so they are quite confused how to deal with the fundamentals. The issue is ideological. Pakistan establishment ideologically is conservative, want to take up uh, religious uh, groups. They want to support them that they should not intervene in their own power um, affairs, but they should divide the people of Pakistan into religious line. So they always support one sect against the other. So that's how I think the interest of the Pakistani establishment is not very clear, is not very consistent, and they are always using different tactics to deal with the fundamentalists.
1: Now, finally, Farouk, I understand that the actual borderline between Pakistan and Afghanistan was drawn up by the British imperialists taking over territory that was traditionally Afghanistan, to maintain a military advantage, uh, being able to more easily intervene from what's now Pakistan into into Afghanistan. Now, does this create a political problem for the Pakistani ruling class in those areas which were formerly part of
5: Afghanistan? How did the local people feel about this? Yeah, the, yeah, the, the winter line is never accepted by both neither from Pakistan nor uh, the Afghanistan. And Taliban's never accepted it. Pakistan never accepted it, but they never use any negotiation to deal with this uh, all the time. Pashtun basically are Afghans, and Pashtuns are the majority of the Khabar Pakhtunkhwa province in Pakistan. As you know, four provinces in Pakistan, Khabar Pakhtunkhwa is the province next to Afghanistan, And most of them Pashtun, and they say very clearly, we are Afghan, but we are Pakistanis. So Afghan is like their, their tribe, their nationality, uh, and uh, they are quite uh, proud of that. And that's why in the past, Awami National Party, which was the main party of the Pashtuns, they always uh, said that we should unite um, the Pashtun of Afghanistan and Pakistani, Afghanistan, Pakistani uh, uh, So, But they never like advocated a new country over there. But they talked about more unity, more relationship, and they were always against this uh, line. And so um, that was used by the British again to divide them and to rule them and uh, really they did that in punjab they did that in the other areas punjab is also very unnaturally divided and uh, there are some uh, villages which are divided into two parts and there are some cities which were to be divided but then later they changed that uh, in that aspect so british went in in hurry out of uh, indian subcontinent because it was a revolutionary period. British were really defeated in the Second World War and they wanted to leave in at any cost. And that was uh, like the main um, uh, purpose of Lord Mountbatten, who was uh, the last uh, uh, general, uh, uh, British general in, in Indian subcontinent. And so the whole thing were left behind in a hurry, not in a calculated manner. And the leaders of Pakistan and India, Nehru and Jinnah, both thought a peaceful sort of, uh, delinking with each other. And both were absolutely wrong. That was the major bloodshed in the history of the world. Over a million were killed. Few millions migrated into each other. So this, these lines around Pakistan. Pakistan is like a new country. It's not like India, which has a long tradition pakistan was created 47 so the new lines around pakistan are not natural it's not based on nationalities it's not based on culture it's based on the whim and wishes of the british imperialism that's why it is always an issue of the borders and like the kashmir that is also another area where both are fighting with each other. So we think British went in, uh, in a hurry, but they thought we can go like this, let them fight with each other, let them be divided all the time and they can still have their own economic interest for future in the whole Indian subcontinent.
1: Thank you, Farooq, for this great insight into this question. And um, yep, we'll speak to you again.
0: I hope you got a lot out of this episode. To continue producing shows like this, we need your... Alright, you're listening to, um, Green Left Radio and we're just playing a recording of a podcast by Green Left on, um, with veteran Pakistani socialist Farooq Tariq, um, talking about, um, the Pakistanis government's, um, response to the, the, um, to the Taliban taking power within Afghanistan. Now, I was just going to use a bit of an opportunity for a bit of a kind of break. I'm sure our listeners might appreciate it to have, play a bit of a, bit of a song for the next four minutes before we go on to our next interview for the program. I'm going to be playing Hope by Kucha Edwards. songs You're listening to Green Left Radio, and you're just listening to Hope by Kucha Edwards. Now, um, on the line, um, we have our um, first um, live interview for the program. Um, we are very happy to have Leo Noglokovic. Um, who is a student at Monash University, and he is going to be running for um, the left-wing student ticket, Student Voice, as um, um, for um, for the position of Education Officer for the upcoming Monash um, Student Union elections. So, yeah, good morning, Leo.
8: Morning, Jacob. Thanks for having me on.
0: So, the, um, I guess the kind of first question, um, is, um, before we kind of go into, um, student voice, I kind of want to hear about some of your, I guess your kind of assessment on, I guess, what is sort of this, the political situation within the kind of student union and then, um, within the Monash MSA, Monash Student Union, if, if that's what I think, that, I assume that's what it's called, or Monash Student Association. <laughs> um, yeah, tell me about the kind of situation kind of there in terms of, yeah, um, student politics
8: Yeah, sure, so the situation in the MSA um, largely mirrors uh, the experience of other student unions all across Australia um, since you know the implementation of neoliberalism in the 70s and 80s and uh, the introduction of voluntary student unionism by the Howard government in the 1990s, student unions have been um, severely depoliticized and weakened um, you know these used to be institutions that were, you know, bastions of um, activism on campus, of providing, you know, numerous services, and unfortunately they have declined um, significantly. Um, The current MSA is an example of that. um, You know, SSAFEs have been reintroduced and, you know, the MSA does provide some services, but we can see that um, the MSA is no longer um, the student union that it used to be um, it focuses um, much more on service delivery rather than activism. And even those services have been severely curtailed um, the current MSA, uh, which has been led by a ticket called Together, which is largely a labour right um, ticket comprised of some Liberals and a lot of people from um, different clubs and societies. Um, they have been running... The MSA, um, basically, as a depoliticised organisation, that's there to facilitate campus life, to organise parties, etc., etc. Um, this is, of course, an important part of student unions, but they have completely neglected um, activism. And uh, during a crisis like that of COVID nineteen, where we've seen so much cuts, um, we're putting the case that that's really unacceptable.
0: Mm. And. Um Key, um, what can you tell us about um, the um, the ticket that you're going to be running for? Um, as, um, um, called Student Voice. Like, what is what are you going to be campaigning for? Like, in terms of like, what why students at Monash should be voting for you?
8: Yeah, so a quick introduction about Student Voice. First of all, um, it was formed last year in 2020 um and it emerged um out of a campaign actually um to support students during the COVID 19 pandemic because the msa weren't doing that and we've had some great wins so far we've dumped examity which is a really um uh, a really sort of concerning and incursive um exam software uh, that the university tried to bring in and we also fought for Um, We're one of the first universities in Australia to get an academic safety net um, to compensate for the sort of um, academic damage that COVID-19 was having on students. Um, Now, in its second year formation, it's a broad sort of progressive ticket um, comprising sections of the Labor Left, the Greens and all sorts of independent activists and socialists. Um, And the one sort of uh, main argument I will put forward as to why students should vote for us is that we're not afraid to fight. Um, we are, we believe that uh, the university and the federal government has been getting away with too much for far too long. Um, we're a student a student voice controlled student union is one that isn't afraid to speak out against issues whether that's um, cuts, uh, whether that's um, things that damage our education experience whether it's broader social issues we don't view behind the scenes meetings as the only way to affect change and we believe that um, students' power can best be realised through sort of collective activism collective campaigning and collective pressure and um, Student Voice really believes in um, fighting for justice and fighting for students and um, we're really unapologetic in this sense and We really want to show students that um, they can have an alternative and they deserve better than a student union which um, only does things in August and September right before elections and is absent in their lives for the rest
0: of the year. Hmm. Well, that's a good um, kind of um, summary. And I guess I want to kind of ask you a kind of question, because I guess you just mentioned that um, Student Voice had sort of came out of a kind of campaign to support kind of students um, during COVID-19. And I guess I want to kind of hear... In terms of what student voice is kind of putting forward, I want to kind of hear some comments, you know, related to what does student voice and, um, and especially in the context of the COVID-19 pandemic is kind of, what kind of measures are uh, you going to be sort of promote, um, uh, advocating for in terms of the, what, um, in terms of like, what, um, what has sort of called like some of the issues that have arisen within monash as a result as a direct result of the um, of the COVID 19 pandemic, especially on the question around international students
8: sure yeah of course um, I'll give a bit of a broad overview um, of a specific focus on education policies as thats sort of the portfolio um, I'm running and uh, um, the key sort of context of this is that 2020 was, you know, really the culmination of, you know, decades of attacks on public education. And, you know, despite posting a surplus of $272 million, Monash University shamefully cut 754 jobs and um, student services and administration were particularly hard hit with 91 um, FTE um, uh, jobs lost. Um, so we're really campaigning um, our policies in the education sector um, against these cuts, reinstating the workers that were sacked, um, but broadly also campaigning to make the education experience better. So we have a policy to implement tutorial caps um, to limit class sizes. Um, and this has a number of uh, you know impacts. It means that um, students can actually get proper feedback, can have time to participate in class, It means more tutors are actually hired. Um, And, you know, in a practical way, it's also more COVID safe uh, once we do have um, in-person classes again. Um, We want to reinstate course advisors. They were cut. Uh, They were a really important, vital tool for students seeking course um, advice, progression. Um, Could have a 20-minute consultation before, and now it's all very bureaucratised through an online service. And we also want to make special consideration more compassionate. Um, to broader sort of policy points, um, we have quite strong policies on the environment. Uh, we want to see divestment from um, fossil fuel companies and other, you know, people involved with profiteering off our earth. Um, we want to see um, union support activism in the sort of social justice and environment sphere. Um, we'll also take quite radical positions on, you know, all sorts of different departments, um, whether it's the women's, or uh, related to mental health. Um, we, we don't believe that student unions can just post sort of Instagram posts and have panel discussions every once in a while. Um, on mental health, for example, is are you okay there yesterday? And I think the university really need to go beyond mental health awareness and have real action on it. For example, the free counselling service that Monash offers is so backlogged that I think the earliest appointment you can get is. In six months' time, which is really unacceptable. Um, so we want to see more funding for that. And to your question about international students, we um, really want to support them. I know a lot of them are feeling isolated, especially through um, uh, you know being so far away from Australia. We want to have more sort of social events dedicated to, to them. And um, hopefully, once uh, borders start to reopen relatively soon, um, we'll back um, international students returning because. Um, they not only um, add a lot of um, sort of profit to Monash, which is what they're focused about, but they really enrich um, the Monash community um, as one of the universities with the highest proportion of international students in Australia. Mm.
0: Alright, well um, do you have a guess, um, Leo, do you have a guess, any kind of final comments you would like to make to sort of wrap things up?
8: Um not really, apart from what's already been said. Um, if anyone does attend Monash, um, I would highly recommend you to vote for Student Voice for a student union that stands up with students and isn't afraid to fight for them. Uh, voting is all online this year, happening during week nine from the 20th to the 23rd of September. And um, I would highly encourage you to get informed and um, hopefully vote one Student Voice.
2: No.
0: Alright. Well, thank you very much, um, Leo, um, for being on our program. And we wish you all the best of luck with your, um, your campaign efforts and, and of course, and, um, and of course, um, the campaign efforts of the rest of the activists who have been pre-selected, um, for the ticket. Um, so yes, yeah, thank you very much, Leo.
8: Thanks, Jacob and everyone. Bye.
0: Alright, so we're just speaking, um, to Leo Nukovic, um, who is currently running as the education officer for, um, Monash, um, for the Monash student elections. And, um, so yeah, um, I think that I might, I might just go play, uh, I'll play a quick announcement. Um, you are listening to Green Left Radio.
4: Well, if you listen to 3 clap your hands. If you listen to 3 Oh, clap your hands. If you listen to 3CR, so know where you are If you listen to 3CR, clap your hands If you listen to 3CR, clap your hands If you listen to 3CR, clap, you clap your hands Well, check out the happening vibe They're gonna ring up and subscribe If you listen to 3CR, clap your hands What? Who the hell's that?
2: Clap your hands What are you talking about? I ain't
4: no elephant Get out of here This is Handmade Radio
0: 3CR, always bringing you the latest union news.
1: Don't They're coming you know after us
0: at the moment. They want to get rid of penalty the rates. The big push from businesses. Down. They want to get rid of all the things that you and I have fought for.
7: Don't you know so there's tens of thousands of jobs gone contracted down. out to sham contracting arrangements.
3: On 8:55 AM and on
0: the web, 3cr.org.au.
2: Wasting time in
0: the lines. Okay, you're listening to Green Left um, Radio. And I, I thought maybe we'll spend a bit of time talking a bit about one kind of headline news story that has. Dominated the kind of headlines in the kind of past week, um, especially within um, within the United States. And I thought I'd just give a bit of a mention of um, the the new um, the uh, the recent kind of ban um, on on abortion um, within Texas. Okay, so basically. Um, there's basically been a big attack on women's rights um, within um, within the United States, within Texas. So essentially, the Texas Heartbeat Act, also known as SB8, essentially ba- um, bans a woman from having a medical abortion once a photo heartbeat is detected. This heartbeat can be detected as early as six weeks into a woman's pregnancy. And, of course, at that early stage ultrasound um, technology can detect um, an electric single known as flutter, even though the embryo is not a fetus and does not have a heart. So one of the kind of... um, The law also has no exemptions for women who are pregnant as the result of rape or incest. But, of course, one of the things that um, has been kind of reported in the ABC about this law is... Is there is a bit, there is, there is sort of this unusual kind of element um, attached to it. Um, almost sort of reflects a certain weird mob mm. mentality. But basically, there is um, within this law that has been passed within Texas, there is a civil law that essentially allows a person to sue anyone who aids or abets an abortion beyond two, six weeks of pregnancy which means doctors, nurses, a woman's family and friends, even an Uber driver who takes someone to a clinic, are at risk of being fined $10,000. Um, the woman itself cannot be sued, um, which is a bit weird. Um, um, you, you know, you'd think they'll try to go all the way in terms of trying to attack women's rights, um, but it's, and essentially this point, they're essentially attacking accomplices um, in yeah, this yeah. weird thing. And one of the weird things as... The person who um, who sues doesn't necessarily need to have any connection to the woman or live in Texas. Yet, if they win, they receive ten thousand dollars and have their legal fees covered. Um, like I, I don't know yeah. how to kind of describe this uh, this law. It's almost like medieval in in how it's kind of done. It's almost like literally promoting regiante sort of justice. Like I can just sort of yeah. imagine a scenario: some crazy. Um, right-wing sort of (laughs) Republican um, deliberately stalks um, a woman or someone who knows that they're going to have an abortion. Um, They get an abortion. They find out that they're having an abortion illegally, and then they go and make this big case. I mean, in fact, there could be potentially a a weird movie made about this or something, but it's like, Mm. yeah, that's the type of strange kind of scenario that's going to be arise out of this law, out of this law. And, um, but of course, I think we have to um, acknowledge that this is a massive attack on women's rights. It's a huge. Women have a right um, to choose when um, they, um, when and when they want to have an abortion. Uh, it should be every kind of woman's kind of choice. And I think, yeah, this is a huge attack on women's rights. And I think, I'm, I think it, 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 it's, it would definitely be a good thing if you know people start getting organised in the United States, especially within Texas, and started mobilising against this law. Um, because I think yeah, it 's completely disgraceful and a massive mm. attack,
3: yeah, one thing I just want to clarify is that the law is only a civil law, so what it enables is the suing of people for to you know then earn yourself ten grand and have your legal fees covered and the reason, as far as I can work out, as far as i 've been able to find at least the reason for a it being a civil law and b you not being able to sue the woman in question is that It basically is set up to skirt the issue of Roe v. Wade. So they're not, they're technically not like banning women from having abortions. They're just trying to make it as difficult as possible to like for the people who would facilitate a women's ability to get abortions, which is obviously the same thing, but just in terms of, you know, it's one of them things that's like lawyers were involved here Mm. and, um,
0: yeah, that's no, a, that's definitely an interesting point because, yeah, they um, technically, I think they... Technically, under this law, abortion isn't actually illegal, in theory, no, because yeah. you can get an abortion. It just has to be as soon as possible, essentially.
3: Yeah, um, yeah. And, like, it's very possible to not know you're pregnant at six weeks. That's a very possible thing. Mm. But, yeah, it's just there to criminalise. It's there to punish everybody involved, but, like, without technically hitting the issue of Roe v. Wade because, you know, that's... I mean as people have been saying since Trump started appointing people to the Supreme Court, you know, immediately, uh, the aim basically is to stack the Supreme Court in a way that means that they can get Roe v. Wade overturned. Um, But this is not quite that challenge yet, I think. Mm.
0: (sighs) All right. Well, I might just go play um, a quick announcement and then we'll copy go on to the green left um, activist calendar. Um, but yeah, um, just to give a bit of a plug, I'm pretty sure um, there is. Um, a, a, just to give a bit of a plug on um, if you enjoyed listening um, to just our discussion on this um, on the abortion law. Just want to give a bit of a plug to another free CR program. Um, but um, there, there has um, there has been a, a free CR program by. Um, let me just quickly, Ascent of Woman. So Ascent of Woman's latest sort of podcast, which released on Tuesday, the 7th of September, which I downloaded the website. website, um, had a bit of, um, did two, uh, interview with two doctors within Texas about this new abortion law. So yeah, have a bit of a, if you go check out the Ascent of Woman program, you can have a bit of a listen to um, hear directly from um, a, a do- um, doctors within Texas about this. Um, the implications of this new law that has been passed within um, Texas. So Yeah, you're listening to Green Left Radio, and I'll just play a quick announcement. Hi, I'm Kim Salmon.
8: I'd like to have a quick word about public radio, particularly 3CR. The thing about public radio is that it's more open than the more formatted types of radio to what's going on around it. So when you listen to it, you're more likely to hear a reflection of real life and 3CR being in... The heart of Smith Street, Collingwood, is a particularly good example of what I'm talking about. If you'd like to uh, subscribe, the number is 94198377. You've been
0: All right, you're listening to Green Left Radio, and now it is a bit um, time for the Green Left Activist Calendar. Now it's a bit. Um, I think we're a bit short this week because a lot of events are still kind of online. So I'm hoping to give as I'll give as many sort of public events that are kind of happening. But to highlight some of the events, there is going to be a number of public forums, online forums sort of happening on Wednesday, September the 15th. So there's going to be online titled Better Buses um, in Melbourne's West, which I think has been organised by Friends of the Earth. So, yeah, organised by Friends of the Earth. Um, so organised by Sustainable Cities and Friends of the Earth Melbourne. So there's going to be a Better Buses campaign launch. Um, the next kind of event to sort of highlight is there's going to be an online forum Um organised by the Wheeler Centre, um, titled the, the Power of Protest, um, which features actually a refugee action collective activist and um, Celeste Little. So that should be a kind of interesting kind of event. And then there's going to be another online forum, West Papua Finding a Way Forward, and that's been organised by the United Nations Association of Queensland. So if you search them up on Facebook, you can um, get their webinar. It features a number of um, guest speakers, including Amadis um am Darl, West Papuan Dip, Diplomat, Free Papuan Movement. Um, Julian McKay Mikhaila King, West Papuan PhD candidate, and Claire Moore and Dr. Donald Donald Davis. So yeah, it's gonna be um a way of kind of engaging on the kind of issue of West Papua. So that's also happening on Wednesday, September the fifteenth. And then there's gonna be um an online forum, um online book launch, Empowering Women, The Right to Choose. And that's happening at 7 p.m. And so that event can be um that events actually have been organised by readings, so the the bookshop, so you can if you check that out, you can go um that. And then um yeah, it's just some other kind of events to note. Um there's gonna be um let's see, oh yeah, there's gonna be a conference, um, Eco Socialism 2021, um which is gonna be online um and it's happening from October twenty third to October the twenty-fourth. And then, um, what are some of the next, I'm just going to go quickly do a bit of a a check on any other sort of upcoming events that are sort of happening. Just, um, but yeah, there's that doesn't, um, there doesn't seem to be much sort of happening. Um,
3: something that happened recently is the most recent episode of my podcast came out on Wednesday, worldcyclepodcast.wordpress.com. It's on other stuff as well, but you know, just click the podcast links website. button on the website and you'll find out which platforms it's on though i don't know if i've updated it since i added it to more platforms anyway go there read everything and hit the like button hmm. i need validation help
0: yeah and um maybe the last thing just to um give a bit of a plug for is um you're listening to obviously you're listening to kind of green left radio and which is uh, the affiliate um and our affiliate is green left and of course green left has been going on for more than kind of 30 years, um, delivering people powered kind of radical media. And in fact, this is more important than ever, especially in the time of the COVID-19 pandemic. And, of course, yeah, we want to kind of recommend, um, yeah, we want to note that, you know, if you want to support our work, um, if you like the work that Green Left kind of does, you can become a supporter of Green Left um, by going on greenleft.org.au forward slash support and you can become a supporter for as low as $5 a month or $10. Um, and then the last thing I want to sort of... Um, you. I just want to note um, that um, R made its radio phone target, which was over two two hundred and fifty thousand dollars, which was actually an incredible effort. And of course, Green Left Radio contributed to um, that fundraising effort, and I think yeah, that this is one of the um, one of the few ti- one of the first times we've um, reached and exceeded our target. So very happy about that but also yeah Free CR um, and community radio um, Free CR community radio also needs your support and so yeah if you um, you can also become a, a um, you can also donate to Free CR or become a subscriber by going on to the freecr.org.au website okay well i might just play i'll play a quick um, a quick announcement um, you're listening to Green Left Radio
3: The Black Lives Matter
1: movement is not going away here or overseas. It gives me hope seeing the numbers of people that turn out to these Invasion Day demonstrations in Melbourne. It gives me the understanding that we will win, folks. We will succeed!
6: delusion about children trapped in tunnels. That's how we got Aussie Q, it seems, and now everything else. I mean, now it's just a six-month pipeline from that to Australians who who, who live in this alternate uh, American fantasy land where they post about Donald Trump all the time. So, its ability to via Save the Children stuff to get a whole range of different political persuasions in is what I found fascinating, you know. I talk a lot in the Aussie Q videos about how your auntie, she might not be that far right wing now But she might be quite left, she might just be a spiritual hippie type But there's this broad appeal to things like Save the Children and Great Awakenings There's almost a hippie-like quality to it Particularly when you tone down the whole MAGA element of of traditional Q And it's getting people in there But Q is not just a conspiracy theory, is it? It is this conspiracy theory that is meant to drag you right after a few months So your auntie's going to be talking about Make Australia Great Again in six months if she isn't right now
2: you're
8: listening to Radical Radio,
2: 3CR.
0: So, for um, our second interview for the program today, um, we have Alex Bainbridge, um, who is national co-convenor of Socialist Alliance, and. The reason why we have him on the program today is um, Alex just recently wrote an article about this kind of new attack on um, small parties that has just been in up into the Parliament um, with the support of Labor. So, um, Alex, what can you tell us about this new legislation that has been passed and why um, is it a big attack on um, small parties, within, um, like electorally?
7: Well, uh, you're probably aware, Jacob, I'm not a big fan of Australia's political system. I don't think it's really a very representative and democratic system. But the truth of the matter is these most recent changes make Australia even less democratic. So what are the changes? Number one, uh, there's more restrictions on parties, uh, small parties, seeking registration. So this is explicitly... The, the big parties have explicitly said they're trying to uh, wipe smaller parties off the ballot paper to give voters less choice. And my contention is that, you know, who is the government and the elected representatives in Australia should be the decision of the voters, not the big establishment parties that are backed up by capitalist dollars and and capitalist interests. So how is this happening? The first, I mean, I guess the most dramatic thing is that parties now have to demonstrate they need 1,500 members, um, which is up from 500. And there's also additional restrictions on the names that parties are allowed to have. So this would be some parties, even long-running parties, will have to automatically change their names or else um, no longer be registered. Um, And there are a number of other changes as well.
0: Mm. And um, what um, I guess what um, one of the kind of things is um, what do you, in, in contrast to guess to some of the current kind of settings because you note in the article I guess that the current settings already kind of advantage the big parties and I guess in terms of these kind of changes how how will that be even more kind of entrenched?
7: Well, at the moment, there's an automatic privilege for anybody who is elected to parliament. So, I mean, one of the examples I used in the in the article was. People might remember Cory Bernardi a few years ago was a Liberal Senator. Now he was elected on the Liberal Senate ticket, which is basically <laughs> like, in the sense of, you know, he was appointed by backroom party officials onto the Senate ticket and people voted Liberal, but they didn't necessarily vote Cory Bernardi. Um, he, he demonstrated zero personal support from among the electorate. Uh, but he left the Liberal Party and instantly overnight he can register the Australian Conservatives without having to show a single, um, you know, a single skerrick of community support. Uh, and so that's basically the privilege that any elected parliamentarian and in, in, particular the big, you know, people get elected on the, you know, the big party tickets. Pauline Hanson was never elected, uh, by One Nation by herself. She was elected initially on the Liberal ticket. And, um, this is the case for a lot of the right-wing parties. Um, and it's, yeah, so this is basically an automatic, uh, privilege for, for the, for the, for the existing parliamentary parties.
0: And I guess one of the other interesting things is is to note in the kind of article, you kind of noted that Labor, there was apparently this kind of big kind of push around, within the kind of the discussion and debate around this kind of bill, there was kind of like a discussion about supporting kind of measures to kind of prevent multiple kind of voting. And I guess you sort of comment that, you know, that issue doesn't... Sort of stack up in terms of its kind of legitimacy, and I guess I want to kind of hear your comments to kind of that effect on that.
7: Look, I think if you can look over to the United States, and anyone who is paying attention, you know, can see that there's a big worry the the sort of level of conspiracy theories and the the right wing unhinged. Um, conspiracy theories that even establishment politicians are prepared to support. Now, one of these is, of course, I mean the, the big lie that Trump pushed about the stolen election. And just more generally, there is a, a long-running, decades-running, long before Trump, there is a decades-long push of voter suppression, so particularly targeted against um, voters of colour in the United States, and. The rationale for this voter suppression is the need to protect the integrity of the vote and to basically stop fraudulent voting. But in the United States, there is, you know, very little, minimal, negligible evidence of voter fraud. Like it's it's a big scaremonger, but it's but it's not an actual practical problem. And it's the same in Australia. I mean, like the the actual demonstrated examples of <laughs> people voting more than once at election is like this minuscule. Um, you know, it, it's, it's really not a practical concern. Uh, whereas, you know, but, but one of the, one of the package of four bills that the government brought in, uh, was ostensibly, uh, designed to protect the security of the ballot. Now, there are a lot of things that could be done that would be, that would be automatically give voters a much more representative and more democratic input into uh, into how how society is running now. I mean, to me, I think that the number one would be to make move towards a proportional system. So right now we have a situation where the Greens, for example, get more than 10% of the vote every election. They get more than 10% of the vote in the lower house. In the lower house, they have less than 1% of the seat. So 10% more than 10% of the vote translates into less than 1% of the, of the seats. And in general, the vote the voter share between the major parties, Labor and the Coalition. It goes up and down, but the long-term trend is, for, is to a decreasing voter share for the major parties, but they still have the overwhelming um, you know, majority, more than their their share of the vote would indicate. They've got a bigger share of the, the seats in the lower House. So, a move to, towards a proportional voting system, and even New Zealand has got a proportional voting system where you can still have an individual local member, so you can still have that sort of personal connection, if that means anything, with a, with a local member. At the same time as having a proportional electoral system, so that that for example that change would be it would be a significant change in the Australian context, but it would be it's also it's also a very simple and practical change uh, that would instantly give voters a much more direct yeah you know, it would it would be an expansion of democracy in Australia, not a contraction. These changes are in fact a, a contraction of democracy.
0: Hmm. And I guess um I want to kind of hear your kind of comments on how this new legislation um, disproportionately really attacks the left as opposed to the right, because, you know, in reality, I mean there's a lot of right-wing minor parties um, that have positions kind of within within Parliament um, with like one kind of seat or or, or something. Um, I want to kind of hear your sort of assessment and your kind of take on why this legislation actually disproportionately disadvantages the left as opposed to these sort of um, right-wing kind of micro kind of parties.
7: Look, uh, I think that really anyone with money can buy can buy the means to get around any of these provisions in electoral law. I mean I think Clive Palmer has demonstrated that in recent years like without any shadow of a doubt. If you have got money, you can get uh, you can get around any of these laws which is why what is needed is not kind of restrictions to make it harder for parties to get onto the ballot, but to give voters more of a meaningful vote so that their, so that their opinions matter more. And, look, you know, as I said, yeah, if anyone with money, which is basically, I mean, the right, you know, automatically, uh, you know, is more inclined to have the backing of, um you know, big business support, even if it's small, you know, isolated fractions of big business like Clive Palmer is, um, or or as, you know, the well-funded churches, you know, we are able to establish family first, for example, um, that's not so much an option that is available to the left. Uh, just because you know there is you know the left, the left strength is in people power, not in in money. But the other the other point I would add on to that is it's not just the electoral system and the voting rules. Um, if you look at the more the the, the broader uh, system of capitalist power, and in particular when you, you know, when you factor in the corporate media into that, it's very clear. You look over the last immediate you know, years, decades. The media gives a lot more attention to right-wing parties, even as even if it's critical attention, than to the left. Uh, I mean, the, the media strategy against the left overwhelmingly is to ignore it. Um, whereas the establishment media, yeah, they will report the fact that there is a QAnon conspiracy theory. They might be critical of it, but it gives it oxygen and airplay and makes more people aware of it. Um, over the years, there's been heaps of criticism against Pauline Hanson's One Nation from the major parties. But it still gives the implicit, uh, setting to, to, to people that pay attention to that media that, you know, that the right is an, is an opposition force. Whereas against the left, their main, their main method of trying to combat us is to ignore us. And that frankly uh, helps. And the reason for that is because, um, the right, the right wing Well, the establishment knows that the the, the far-right opposition is not actually a challenge to the capitalist system, it's not a challenge to capitalist rule, and it's not a challenge to their interests. It's actually helpful for them uh, for for there to be a strong far-right because it puts right-wing pressure on the major parties and makes it it easier for them to find excuses not to implement the more popular progressive policies. Um, So I think that's why... I mean, there are multiple ways in which the system is rigged more towards the right than towards the left. Um, it is, you know, it is harder for the left to break through, but people need to remember it's not impossible. Um, but it does require a concerted people power effort. Yeah. And actually, the one other point I might make while I'm talking, if it's okay, um, I think it's really important that people realize that these, these, these changes to electoral laws that are undemocratic, they've come from the coalition's initiative, but Labor's support was critical to getting them passed. If it hadn't been for Labor's support, it's it's very unlikely that um, it would have been. Well, to say the least, it would have been much harder to get these to get these changes through.
2: Mm.
0: Okay. Well, um, do you um, I think we're running a bit out of time? To but do you have, I guess, any kind of final comments you'd like to make to sort of conclude this discussion?
7: Look, I think the final point to emphasise is: sure, this is less democratic. It's a big. It's a big attack on ordinary people. But what we need to remember is. People power is stronger than all of their politicians, all of their money, all of their media, all of their military, all of their police power. People power is stronger. So it's not a reason to give up. It's actually, if anything, a reason to to to, to give extra support to to left wing organisations like the Social Alliance and, and other other progressive organisations as well.
2: All right.
0: Well, thank you very much, Alex. Um, But, yeah, um, this is definitely a a massive attack on democracy, and I think, yeah, we should all be opposed to
7: it. Thanks, Jacob.
0: Alright. So we're just uh, having a discussion with Alex Bangbridge, um, National Co-Governor of the, um, of Socialist Alliance, um, about this new legislation that, um, attacks, um, the, um, small parties. And in fact, nowadays it is looking like under this new law for the next kind of federal kind of election, um, political, for political parties to be registered, they have to demonstrate that they have over a thousand five hundred members. Um, although that said, that's not, um, in theory, this doesn't stop um any party from, like, running the election, but to get state registration, i.e. have your name present on the ballot paper, you essentially will have to prove that you have over a 1,500 names. So, yeah, it's definitely a big attack, and I think, yeah, it should definitely be. It's always interesting that the Federal Parliament always looks kind of for measures to restrict small parties, despite the fact that they constantly insist that small parties are... Uh, Useless thing you should just vote for the major parties like the Labour Party or the Liberals.
3: Yes. If us small parties were actually useless, they wouldn't be threatened by us.
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. And now I might. Um, I'll- just like to kind of thank all our listeners for tuning in this week. Um, you're listening to Green Left um, Radio. like to thank all our guests for being on our program this week. I'd uh, like to thank um, all our, our listeners again and also thank our presenters. Well, Ari for um, be- being our co-presenter today. So, yeah. Um, yeah. All the oh, the best um, with, um, the, with lockdown. Um, solidarity in the sort of hard times we're kind of in. And yeah. We're looking forward to speaking to you all next week. You're listening to Green Left Radio.
3: See ya.
1: This brings us to the end of the show. You have been listening to Friday Morning Breakfast with Green Left Radio, brought to you by Green Left Weekly Newspaper, which brings an alternative source of information that puts people and planet before profit.
0: If you like our work, become a supporter from $5 per month at greenleft.org.au slash support or free call 1-80-634-206.
2: Arise you workers from this Bummers, arise you prisoners of want. For reason in revolt now thunders in it last since
0: the age of Kant. Away with all your superstitions! Serve all masses,
2: arise! We'll change henceforth the old tradition and spurn the dust to win the prize. That's right, the commies are back. Reds underneath your beds and that.